Welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast, Episode 1.2, Introductions and Intersections, Part 2. I'm your moderator, Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are two ladies uh, who will be a part of our lineup of regular panelists, Lisa Cordles and Sarah Morrow. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for being a part of the project. Before we start, let's introduce ourselves a bit. Lisa? I'm Lisa Cordles. I live in Waconia, Minnesota. I'm married to an amazingly supportive man for 13 years, and I have three beautiful daughters ranging from 18 to 8. I'm an adjunct professor at Crown College, and I teach in both the humanities and Bible and theology departments. I'm really excited about these episodes because I have spoken throughout the district in this area on issues facing women of faith. So I just love this, and I'm super excited. Great. Sarah? Hi, I am Sarah Morrow. I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I am currently in High Point, North Carolina, the furniture and home furnishings capital of the world, uh, where I am, uh, I know, right, where I am teaching high school English at, at the triad area's only non-sectarian independent high school. It's a very small school with approximately 300 students. And when I am not doing that, I am planning a wedding. I will be getting married in three weeks and supposed to be working on my dissertation through Florida State University in 18th century British literature, focusing mainly on drama and the intersections between law and literature. And I am very excited about the opportunity to work on this podcast as uh, a chance to uh, grow, continue to grow and understand uh, my own faith and my feminist approaches to various issues of the day. It, it'll be a fun intellectual exercise for me that is totally unrelated to school, and I'm very excited about it. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I know all about that, know all about supposed to be working on the dissertation as well as the intellectual exercise. Well, thanks. Uh, I am, as I said, Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, again, loyal listeners to the Christian Humanist podcast will know me as Michael Farmer's wife. Uh, <laughs> we live together in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I, like Lisa, work as an adjunct at Crown College. So, now that we've got those introductions out of the way, we're going to continue our last episode's discussion of intersections of Christianity and feminism, but we're going to do that a little bit differently in two ways. First, where last week we talked mostly about women's minds, this week we're going to talk mostly about women's bodies, specifically regarding the notion of Christian female modesty. Secondly, uh, this week's discussion is going to be a bit less academic than last week's discussion in that we're talking about two blog posts for our readings, one of which I expect at least some of you have seen. It's been making the rounds around the internet, around Facebook. Uh, in the past few weeks. Uh, before we get into the reading, though, uh, let's get into our first segment, the knowing segment, in which we establish a little bit of background. So, Lisa, lots of people who are pro-modesty, as our first uh, blog post articulates it, use biblical instruction to justify their claims. Can you give us a couple of examples of Bible verses that fit that bill? Sure. Uh, before I do that, though, I want to talk a little bit about how teaching, preaching, and Bible studies and discussions of modesty often go. Usually when we're talking about modesty, it's always couched in the same conversation as the issue of submission. Most often it will come up there and also the issue of self-control. It is 
somewhat rare to see modesty divorced from these two other issues. They're usually all tangled up together, which is interesting if you think about it. Um, as a wife and mother, my most of the conversations that I've had and instruction I've had at you know the church level, that sort of thing, when they talk about modesty, it's always in juxtaposition to uh, submission. So I just kind of wanted to talk about that conjunction just a little bit. And one of the verses that's most often used to show that intersection of these two issues is First uh, Peter 3, 1 through 4. And I'm just going to summarize. Starts out talking about wives being subject to their husbands. And then it ends with like how they should not be adorning their hair and putting gold jewelry in it and things like that. So yes, I kind of understand why those two issues have intersected. And this verse is often used for that. I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. And then also 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, is probably the most quoted verse in the New Testament in regard to the subject of female modesty. Um, and that is likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable attire with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair. They must not have really liked braids back then. And gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I mean, this is the standard verse that addresses female modesty. And I'm, I'm assuming we're going to be talking about this a little bit. Most conversations regarding modesty that are supported by scripture have to do with women. Uh, obviously, this verse is not read to men, but it's been my experience over the years that any conversation about modesty centers on the female. Uh, so I kind of focused on those types of verses. And finally, what would be a discussion of modesty without Proverbs? Sure. Oh, Oh, Proverbs. That Proverbs 31 <laughs> woman, she's everywhere. She's everywhere, isn't she? <laughs> um, she's just everything. She's just an everything woman. Um, I know Sarah said she's about to get married. She will come to loathe the verse that a nagging wife is like a leaking roof, just like the rest of us, but um, that's for another day. Um, this verse is interesting because it's often used to put down women who wear makeup or even color their hair. Or even women who choose to work out, this is the verse that's used to condemn those kind of actions. Um, and I'll just read it, and you can kind of see why someone has made the t connection. However, I want to I want to stress something. You can make those connections, but you probably shouldn't. Uh, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And this verse is used to say, okay, so beautifying treatments such as coloring your hair, maybe wearing makeup or whatever makes you feel confident, those are just a form of deceitfulness. And therefore, they're not only in violation of modesty, now you're breaking the Ten Commandments too. And, you know, you might laugh a little bit, but I've definitely been a party to those type of conversations and had that sort of message received. Um, it happens. And so those were the three I kind of wanted to bring up. Absolutely. That, um, that is a conversation that I think happens in a lot of realms. Sarah said earlier she studies um, 18th century uh, restoration literature, and I um, study literature from the Renaissance to the Restoration. And in that period, there's this whole genre of literature about woman's inconstancy. Um, mm. that, that points to this sort of beauty as duplicity notion as well. 
um, Hamlet says to Ophelia in Act 3 of that play, God has given you one face and yet you make yourselves another. Uh, to, to say that like using cosmetics is like lying. Mm-hmm. So that this is something that is that is really historically grounded um, and, and has been around for a long time, yeah. Not just in biblical instruction, but in literature as well. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, great. Uh, thank you for those examples, Lisa, and also for pointing out something that we covered in our first episode as well, which is there is no such thing as an objective hermeneutic, an objective <laughs> interpretation of the Bible. Um, everyone is coming from somewhere. Everyone is injecting um, mm-hmm. opinions and biases. So thanks for that. But definitely, if you are going to do serious hermeneutics, you have to take those presuppositions which is what those are, you know, your presuppositions and just say, you know what, I have to, you know, if I'm going to actually instruct others, and this is just a point of contention with me as a female Bible and theology instructor, is that if we're going to do study, which is what we're supposed to be doing, then we have to take, we have to acknowledge those presuppositions and say, you know what, I have these presuppositions and you need to come to the word with an open heart and not put your opinions over it. And so I just think that that alone is a conversation that also needs to take place. And again, somebody's presuppositions, you listed off a bunch of them, but it could just be, you know what, this is what I've always been taught. And so just having um, the ability to say, just because it's what I've always been taught, doesn't mean that it's an objective interpretation. Sorry, I just had to get that out. Great. <laughs> uh, no, that, that sounds great. Thank you uh, for adding that to the discussion. I think it's an important point. So um, Lisa has already told us a bit about her um, theology background. Sarah, as the token Catholic here at the Christian <laughs> Feminist, um, the, the typical assumption is that this, uh, this notion of uh, clothing-related female modesty is primarily a low-church Protestant concern. Um, do you think that's true? Have you run into modesty as the blog posts uh, we're reading today have defined it? Well, um, first of all, I'd like to apologize. My Wi-Fi cut out part of the way through uh, Lisa's what <laughs> sounded like before it cut out. Wonderful explanation of scriptural bases for uh, for this discussion of female modesty. So I apologize if my uh, comments might seem a little bit out of context. But one of the things that I do um, want to point out is the... There's an extent to which my experience of modesty discussions within a specifically Catholic setting might or might not be uh, emblematic or representative of the conversations that are going on. I know three of us spoke uh, before we started recording about discussions of the modesty, uh, this discussion of modesty and particularly in clothing um, and the uh, pure fashion movement, um, which I'm not sure is explicitly a Catholic movement or not, but is something that uh, has come up in Catholic settings. I noticed an advertisement for the course and the fashion shows in um, my parish's bulletin uh, just this, uh, just yesterday, this past Sunday. Um, But uh, as far as my own experience of um, Catholic encounters with modesty, what I remember from my own uh, youth group discussions about sex and modesty 
that were part of what is known as the Life Teen movement. I'm not sure how familiar you ladies might be with Life Teen as as a Catholic youth group movement. Um, are you guys familiar with it at all? No, or I have am heard of not. It? No. Okay. All right. Okay. So the Life Teen movement is a catechetically formulated uh, youth group form of uh, CCD or, you know, uh, again, catechetical formation that operates on a youth group format. So the idea is to kind of meet teens where they are and then provide Catholic instruction. So the format usually involves some sort of gather where we have an icebreaker or a game of some sort, and then we move into a catechetical lesson, and then we send groups forth. So it's a very dynamic uh, environment. It's not so much the high church formal rote memorization of catechism that people might remember from a pre-Vatican II standpoint. But my discussions that I had with my youth group uh, tended to be focused on or couched in, number one, the mutuality of the exchange of responsibility, and secondly, in the verticality of the exchange or responsibility. So it was not only, our discussions were not only about the importance of young women needing to uh, be responsible or modest in their modes of dress, but was also about uh, men taking some responsibility in their own modesty and their own um, and their own interactions with with women, and then that this was that these ideas were all focused vertically in the sense that they were all about um, how we approach God through these things more than about. Uh, you know, more so than being horizontal and being, you know, this is just a cultural thing. That it was, it was very much a a us and an us and God thing. The the idea about modesty, I guess, to follow from that, the idea was that modesty was a responsibility of everyone, um, not male or female, but everybody. Now, in some of my research for this piece, I ended up coming across part of something that was published by Pope Pius the Twelfth in, I think, 1959, that actually does single out women and their modes of dress in his discussions about modesty. And he says, and I'll quote this passage for us, uh, Christian girls think also of this, the more elegant you will be and the more pleasing if you dress with simplicity and discreet modesty. And then... um, I know I mentioned the pure fashion movement, but also some recent bloggers on the Life Teen website. So again, the main Catholic youth group organization that is a a national, it's an international thing, um, have focused on girls as the addressees of their own discussions of modesty. So while my own personal experience was not one that tended to single out women. These discussions appear to be taking place within parts of the Catholic community. I just haven't been a part of them. That's, um, that's really interesting that both that your youth group seems to have been able to transcend um, th- this kind of um, single female focus and that, that it seems both Catholics and Protestants are having this kind of focus problem. Interesting. Yes. And then the other thing that I think that was, that, that happened that I can, that I can give my youth, my own youth group credit for is that this idea of mutuality does have, um, a basis in, 
um, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church places its discussion of modesty actually in the sections regarding the Ninth Commandment, um, which was the one about coveting your neighbor's house or neighbor's wife and, um, you know, manservant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And the Catechism actually does state specifically that modesty protects both the intimate center of the person and guides how one looks at others and behaves towards them in conformity with the dignity of persons and their solidarity. And one of the things that I really like about this idea and what I think was part of my own youth group experience is this idea that even the catechism focuses on the idea that it's as much about the person doing the looking as it is about the person being looked at. Yeah, that's that's really excellent. Um, which I think is is sort of radical. And again, when you think when you put something like that in juxtaposition with some of the discussions that I see on informal Catholic websites, I'm not sure how well they are always catechetically informed because the catechism seems to indicate that there is this mutuality and that it is as, it, that it is as much about the person who is, again, the person who is doing the looking as it is the person who is being looked at. That is amazing to me. I, I, I did Catholic school for three years and I actually had a very good experience with the Catholic church. Um, mm-hmm. And I always found them to be very, what my experience too was, was that the, you know, the motto was that this is a, you know, shared issue. However, sometimes the teaching did seem to center more on the women. So I think it's good that at least that message of this is a, you know, this isn't a female issue. It it covers, you know, humankind, basically. Um, I just, I find that really, really um, affirming. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's really great. And and also offers us, I think, a nice segue into our next segment, the reading segment. So this week, we're going to talk about, as I said, two blog posts. And the first is the one that I think at least some of our listeners are probably going to be familiar with, started making the rounds on the internet a few weeks ago. Um, It's by a mother named Kim Hall and is entitled, FYI, If You're a Teenage Girl. Lisa, can you summarize Mrs. Hall's post a little bit? Yeah, I can. Um, She's coming at you from the perspective of a mom who's trying to do some internet monitoring. That's, That's what's happening here. She's making it clear that if you post something on one of my children, in this case, one of her son's Facebook page, the entire family is privy to what you have posted. Um, that's a pretty standard rule in most households. And, it, you know, really it has to do with safety. But, you know, she just she just wanted to make that part clear. So I think she's kind of jumping off from that place. I think that's where she's starting from. That, you know, this is a family rule. This is how we handle things like Twitter and Facebook. Whatever you put up there, everyone's going to read it. So I do think that's where she started from. However, as they were looking at, I believe it's one of her son's uh, Facebook page and just looking through some pictures that have been posted, um, there was a girl, I guess, in a very kind of seductive pose. She was wearing a towel, I believe, and she was kind of doing the pouty lip thing. And I'm here. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, this mom's response is that you are banned. If you, she even uses the word zero tolerance. If you mess up like this in this particular way, she didn't mention other issues that would get you banned from accessing her children through social media, but she focused on this particular issue. That's it. We have zero tolerance. We're done with you. There will be no more contact. And that was, and she almost couches it as a warning. 
you know, I'm going to be going through my son's, I'm going to be doing this in-depth research. So if you have something you want to take down before I do that, you know, you better do it now. And it was just interesting. She does wave a hand at this idea of mutual accountability. But when I say waves a hand at it, I mean, she barely touches on that. It's very much more um, FYI to the girls that are trying to have social media contact with my children. This is how it is. That's what I took away from it. Yeah, I, I think that you get that tone um, from from the title of the post and also something uh, to note about the post as it was originally formatted is uh, it originally appeared accompanied by several other posts that included pictures of her young sons in their bathing suits so so while she's while she's warning uh young girls that young men are incredibly visual she mm-hmm. she doesn't seem to realize uh that young women can be visual too and that by including these kinds of pictures with this post uh this post about um physical modesty that she's sort of sending mixed messages so I thought that was really interesting too yeah I mean I definitely want to let Sarah weigh in I just had a couple of thoughts after reading it Um, my first thought was you know I just couldn't help but just hear condemnation and judgment and it just seemed to me a very unfortunately and sadly I want to add those words unfortunately and sadly a very typical Christian position in my opinion um I just kept asking myself, where is the grace for this young lady who's still learning, who's still growing, who still is going to make mistakes? We have a saying in our family, you get paid to make mistakes till you're 32. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you just, you get to make mistakes. And I don't know that cutting off contact with someone to this level and this kind of public shaming, um, I just don't consider that godly truth. And for me, I think a lot of things needed to happen differently and it's not that I don't get what she's saying I mean I get some of it I do I understand you know this is something that parents need to be aware of and we need to you know handle it uh, biblically and correctly but you know she kept talking in that about well I'm trying to raise these these men these these boys to be men well why not let him handle the situation himself why did there have to be a public shaming she could be teaching her sons not only accountability but also proper biblical conflict resolution She could have had her son go talk to this girl and say, hey, you know, my mom was kind of upset or however people talk nowadays, I don't know, and then say something to the effect of, you know, they could have had this really great conversation that as growing adults, what they actually think and feel about modesty, they could have had this great conversation, but that's not going to occur now because now that you've publicly shamed someone else's kid, I'm a mom and let me tell you something, your mama bear claws are going to come out and now it's going to be this whole kind of big mess when it could have actually been this great moment for dialogue and growth and a lot of other things and I just think that part was missed for me great uh Sarah care to weigh in here I reacted similarly to I I think to Lisa on this one I did I heard I heard or felt or read a lot of shame in the initial post and um I did also find the initial uh, selection of photographs uh, included in the blog post uh, to be perhaps a little bit dis- 
disingenuous or inconsistent. And um, I'm not sure if any of you guys have checked this blog post recently, but two days after the original post was written, um, after getting pretty roundly vilified by a number of, of readers, uh, some of them were vitriolic, some of them just pointed out the same things that we have, that there's there, there appear to be some visual inconsistencies in the photographs included in the initial post, that um, Mrs. Hall did in fact go back and replace all of the pictures on the original post um, so that her sons are now fully clothed and wearing sweatshirts and jeans in all of these pictures, uh, which seemed to also raise a whole separate set of questions about whether or not uh, young men making muscle poses in bathing suits are the same, quote, degree of sexual that uh, young women wearing towels and duck facing in their bedrooms is. <laughs> Uh, so I guess people are going to argue about just about anything that gets put on the internet, but I, but she did go back and change the uh, change the pictures, and then a couple of days later, um, only because I was trying to relocate the initial link to the post, I ended up finding uh, a follow a follow up post that was only written about four days ago, wherein um, wherein Mrs. Hall actually admits to some of the things that we've just talked about. She says in this post, where is the grace, I asked myself, I realized with dismay that it wasn't there. Uh, she's couching this as if new readers were dropping in on her blog, uh, people who were unfamiliar with her work elsewhere. Um, so I realized with dismay that it wasn't there for the new reader. In fact, I was the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Where was the good news? It was absent. And so I was the Pharisee praying loudly and proudly in the public square. Wow. And then where was the kindness that brings repentance? There was precious little in that particular post, and it pained me. I know I may have wounded some of you with my words. I have misrepresented my heavenly father, squandered his grace, and for this I truly repent. Wow. So that post went up. Okay. Yeah, that, that, so that post went up four days ago, but that post went up two and a half weeks after the initial one. So... I'm, I'm not sure if there's anything to be read into the timeline, the fact that there was a 14 or 15 day lapse um, and that this post was only written after um, she was contacted by CNN and declined an interview after, um, you know, after her post went viral and um, she became a topic of discussion. Uh, but she does make this gesture in this current post so on the one hand, she asks for forgiveness. On the other hand, there seems to be absent from this post a realization that there are multiple sides to this issue that she is still not addressing in this appeal for reconciliation. I'm not sure what, if anything, we should make of that, uh, but it seems curious to me that, that there's still not an admission that there are aspects of the initial post that are still not that are still being addressed or still not being addressed or still being overlooked i am glad to hear that she at least on on a surface level because i don't know the woman so i would i just mm -hmm. have to i have to i do have to kind of look at the timeline and be like okay sadly is this is this a response to the backlash or is this how you feel let's just give her the benefit of the doubt this is how she feels um because i want to do that i want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt um uh, i just mm -hmm. i want to do that i think that you know what let's just leave that and just say, you know what, maybe she is really sorry. Maybe she is repenting. You know, let's, let's just say she is for sure. However, um, I think, th I actually think that's really good. I think it's good that she did come to a place where she understood that, you know what, I'm 
I was on there trying to prove that I'm right and my family's right and everything we do is right. And that's how it came off. And I'm glad that she sees that because that was one of my points I was going to make that it really does read that way. It, like mm-hmm. absolutely it reads i thinking incredibly condescendingly like i i wanted to point out this quote from the original post uh, we have teenage sons and so naturally there are quite a few pictures of you lovely ladies to wade through wow you sure took a bunch of selfies in your skimpy pjs this summer your bedrooms are so cute our eight-year-old daughter brought this to our attention because with three older brothers who have rooms that smell like stinky cheese she notices girly details like that so first of all the the wow the so cute um this is is kind of infantilizing condescending language secondly something that comes across just in that quote um is a a fault i think of the entire post as a whole which is she dichotomizes along gendered lines really broadly uh boys are stinky and girls are cute boys are visual and girls are emotional there there's not a lot of room for in-betweens and how she uh how she seems to see the world and and see gender working uh in the first post so while i agree with you that it is great uh that for whatever reason she did it that she walked back and apologized i think that's excellent but i do think that there's still some underlying causes missing from the second post chiefly that uh really simple dichotomy well and i think that the what you talked about how there's these gender lines i think and again sadly and unfortunately that's the typical christian response um i know that there's a famous book out there and people probably really like it that men are waffle brained and women are spaghetti i want to throw stuff i want to throw spaghetti at the wall i have never heard of that but that sounds horrible it's it's horrifying it's it's just it's just reiterating these how men are so waffle brained and they can they compartmentalize all of their emotions and women we're spaghetti and we're completely incapable of doing that because we've never had to compartmentalize our emotions and deal with the situation ever in our lives god help us you know it's just sorry i just it just drives me crazy and it just seems to me like she's definitely of that school that you know what? And for me, it's like, you know what? I can be spaghetti sometimes. I can let emotion affect me. But I can be waffle brain too because you know what? I have to sometimes in order to just get through my day or handle a situation in a biblical way. Why is it that this is a typical male quality? I just, I think she's just speaking from that place of just the traditional, in my opinion, teaching of how men are and how women are. And I think it's so cool that you picked up on that. That's not something I picked up on right away. That is something, um, as, I, as I think both of you know, I teach um, our college's junior and senior uh, human sexuality seminar. And, and God bless you for that, by the way. <laughs> oh, I, um, I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's really fun for me. Uh, any time I can make uh, students in the Christian college bubble a little uncomfortable, I, I enjoy Hallelujah. signing up for that. Hallelujah. <laughs> nice. Um, but something that we talk about over and over almost every single week in that course is that um, in order to love our neighbor as God teaches us to, we need to treat human beings not as labels, not as sort of checkboxes, but as human beings. And in order to do that, we have to recognize complexity. We have to recognize that these dichotomies shortchange people and don't treat them as who they really are. So yeah, that that's something um, that's that's really important to me when dealing with sex and gender from a Christian perspective. So that that jumped right out at me from this piece. 
Well, and uh, Victoria, one of the things that, that you just brought up uh, reminded me of something that I think you mentioned last week, right, is this idea of treating people as people. Um, and the extent to which when we talk about, uh, when we talk about love and we talk about sexuality, one of the things that I think is, uh, pretty amazing is, uh, Pope John Paul II's book, Love and Responsibility. And, you know, uh, Carol Wotiwa, uh, trained as a philosopher before he became a priest and then later became Pope. So his, um, I have to read his work in explanatory study guides. I, I cannot read his original works. It's, it's a lot for me. But one of the main points that John Paul II makes in Love and Responsibility is that the opposite of love is not hate, that it is use. Um, and so in other words, to use or objectify another person is to not love them since loving another person is to acknowledge their humanity. Um, and so I think that I think a point like that speaks to, you know, speaks to what you try to accomplish in your uh, sexuality course. And I think also to one of the things that I think might be overlooked in Mrs. Hall's post is, is this idea. There's still this subtle language of use when, you know, when young boys are looking at pictures of young girls, that, that, that there is this, this exchange value, almost language going on that doesn't seem to acknowledge the integrity of, of the human person behind it. So, um, I I think we, we all agreed. And I think, uh, a word that came up as we were all three of us discussing Mrs. Hall's post is the word shame. Um, This idea of shaming particularly young women for their sexualities. Have either of you experienced um, this kind of judgment, this kind of shaming um, in relation to modesty yourselves? And if so, um, can you tell us a little bit about those experiences, how they affected you? Uh, well, I, I can start. Um, I, I've been, I have over the last, gosh, what I, several decades, I, I have been navigating. I am still navigating an interesting, uh, set of waters with regard to shaming and judgment and, um, with regards to modesty. One of them, I think we've talked about, uh, off air is that um, as the only non-sectarian independent school in my region, uh, we do not have uniforms, but we do have a dress code. And the dress code debates that have been going on this year have been almost exclusively centered on what the women have been wearing and um, what what the modes of dress these young women choose to employ say about them. So some of the language about dress code debates have been sort of couched in this wannabe language of modesty, and it is exclusively directed at women. And that that makes me bristle because, for example, if we're going to uh, ask women that they not wear clothing that reveals undergarments, then the young men should be uh, be held to a similar standard. But even then, that language makes me a little bit uncomfortable, this idea of adhering to a standard. So trying to navigate what a dress code means, what it impl- like what it is meant to accomplish versus the conversations we actually have about it, if that makes any sense. Um, and then the only other experiences that 
I have never felt shamed or judged based on what I have been wearing. Um, however, I'm not sure to what extent you guys might be able to to identify with this, but um, I decided to adopt a slightly different mode of dress and a slightly different uh, approach to meeting people when I went to college. I, as as an uh, as an elementary school student and a middle school and a high school student, going to um, I'm a 13 year Catholic school alum for those listeners <laughs> who don't know. So going going to small ish schools where you know. 50 to 60% of the student population for 13 years. Um, I had been pegged as a a nerd and a bookish type early on and decided that um, I wanted people to recognize uh, other aspects of my personality. So I, I adopted a much more vocal and much more openly sexual approach to meeting people in college, and while on the one hand that allowed me to to navigate those waters, on the other hand, people stopped recognizing that I was smart. Hmm, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. So, so if, if you so, dress a certain way, you're not intelligent. That's interesting. Right, and you know, there <laughs> or were, if it you're was, intelligent, you can't be sexy. Right. There's and that. So, there's the other side of that. Yeah. Right. Men so seldom high- make passes at girls who wear glasses. Right. Oh my gosh, do people still say that? Uh, I don't know. My husband says it to me all the time to uh, make me make my fake angry face. And uh, it, it's worthy of noting. My favorite thing about that uh, that little uh, jokey piece of verse is that uh, it's men who seldom make passes at girls. Um, so there's there's not that kind of gender equivalent, which is something that comes up in uh, in Mrs. Hall's original post too. Interesting. Uh, we're dealing with men and girls and not uh, boys and girls. So. Interesting. Sorry, Sarah. No, no, no. That's no, that's fine. Or men and women. So, so that is very much a a a set of waters that I have navigated myself because uh, you know, as a younger adolescent, I was smart and therefore not considered pretty, or or what or what have you. In college, um, in college, I ended up in a position where. where frequently people made assumptions about my sexuality, but seemed to uh, neglect or willfully overlook um, the intelligence. And so that intimidated them when all of a sudden I turned smart or, or something. Um, So again, not quite shame, but it's this, this set of issues is something that has certainly come into play in my life. And then I know Victoria that you and I have had, uh, discussions about the extent uh, to which uh, to which we need to acknowledge extant power structures, um, even in the midst of of trying to advocate for a more holistic approach to human sexuality in general. Um, I know that you and I have have had conversations about that before, and I'm still not entirely sure where I am in that process. Um, so where, where does that happen, right? When we acknowledge that certain power structures exist, but, but they are still not, but they still deny certain things 
or, you know, certain abilities, certain rights to various groups of individuals. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a really tough um, place to navigate and that those those power structures are um, often really hard to address, um, mostly because power is mostly invisible, right? That's why it's power. These ideologies mm-hmm. replicate themselves in ways that aren't immediate to people who are socialized in a given society, right? That That's just the way things are done. That's just the way things work. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I also have trouble dealing with, with issues like this. Um, but I, I think that that what we're doing is what we should be doing, that we should be thinking about what this power is and where it's going and where it comes from. Well, yeah. I I also, when, it, when we talk about one thing that I think feminist the- theologians love to talk about are power structures. That's Absolutely. one of the, that's just a feminist theology thing. And it, it um, should be. And yes. it should be. And I think it's good that people are finally talking about it. In my experience, and I've been in a few different denominations, um, and my experience is looking at who has the power is also interesting or even who has the perceived power in a situation and i think that's important too because like you said victoria you know power is invisible i think that's what you said and um and, and it's that perception of power too and i think women are often aware of both you know, there are people in our lives uh, that do have power over us, such as our, you know, our boss or our chair of our department or whatever. But then there's also this perception of power where, you know, you're not sure exactly who is in authority, but you know you're being told things that are, you know, damaging. And that's where my shame story would be. <laughs> right. Can you uh, tell us a little yeah, bit more about I that? Yeah, I will. I'm going to protect the guilty and just leave out all names, <laughs> the guilty and the innocent. Um, I was a brand new teacher. That's how I'm going to word that. A brand new teacher. And I really was naive, ladies. I thought, you know what? This is going to be so cool. All these women are going to look up to me. I'm going to be their favorite professor. I, just, I was just really excited, you know. And about a month into my fir- very first teaching experience, a female student came to me and she said, I have to talk to you. And I'm like, okay. And I thought it was something personal, you know, that she was going to share with me and I was going to help her. Again, pride goeth before the fall. Um, And she said, God has called me to address your modesty. That's how she began the conversation. Wow. Um, Talk about power structures, right? right. She said, God has called me. And I'll never forget this because that's how she started the conversation. So I was just very floored. Um, she said that she's gotten together with several of her friends and they've started a prayer group just about me, just for me, where one of the young women, this is the one that was elected to come talk to me. I'm sure she volunteered actually. Uh, she kept a journal of every outfit I ever wore, the colors, the length of the skirt, as far as she could eyeball it from her chair in the classroom. Um, the, you know, I used to wear heels quite a bit. Um, and she said, you know, she knew how long they were. Uh, she had a list from that journal of things that I should burn, I believe was the word that she used. Um, and, um, I'm listening to all this, you know, and it's sort of one of those car accident kind of experiences because you just don't, again, I thought I came into this with just a totally different idea of what this conversation was going to be about. And so I just really felt sideswiped, you know. I can imagine who expected that to happen. <laughs> no, it was really bad. Wow. And the worst of it is, as an adjunct, I had to share my office. 
so not only was I listening to all this, someone else is trying not to eavesdrop. And this other woman and I actually became really good friends after this. She goes, I thought about leaving, but then I just, I really wanted a witness to the conversation because I didn't want anyone to think that you were making it up. So I just stayed and started writing down everything that she was saying, um, which actually ended up being good in the end. Yeah, um, that, that sounds like a really great yes. idea, actually. It was actually a very good idea. She just kept listening and writing down everything that was said. And she actually opened up her, uh, like a Word document and started typing and just writing everything down, which was really cool of her. I still love that lady. Um, anyway, she said that they feel I dress like a Jezebel woman. And um, that, and she kept repeating certain phrases. Well, you obviously care about your body. You obviously work out. You obviously dye your hair. You obviously wear makeup. And she's like, and we're all very impressed with the packaging. But, you know, you're a Jezebel woman. And I can remember these things because we ended up having to have some conversations about it. And there was like a typed up version. So, you know, it's just one of those really fun experiences for me, really, if you think about it. Um, I, and, I just don't know that I could have sat through that without laughing. Did again, you're in car accident mode. You have to remember that. Like, I'm just in complete car accident mode. And she told me that she felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to say the things that she was saying. So it was just this idea of control, constant control. She starts the conversation by saying God called her to say these things. She she brings in this pseudo group of friends. Like this isn't just her saying it. All these people are saying it. She's completely manipulating the she, conversation. She's making rhetorical appeals to yeah. authority is what yeah, she's she doing. Is. She's appealing exactly. to a higher right. power and then she's appealing to the knowledge of the group. That's exactly rhetoric. I mean, it it's, was it's not great <laughs> rhetoric, but it's rhetoric. Um, and what, um, what she, I have to tell you something, this was the most shaming experience I've ever had. It was humiliating. It was degrading. I'm proud to say I did not cry in front of her. The Holy Spirit was with me as well. (laughs) And I said something and I have to tell you, I don't know where it came from other than the Lord. I, I finally just stopped her because it was just getting ridiculous. And I said, you know, I think you have this idea in your mind of what a Christian woman looks like, talks like, dresses like, and it's almost like a box in your mind. And I'm getting, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that I don't really fit into your box. And she goes, oh, thank God. Thank God you already know. I don't even need to be here. And I was like, well, well hold on a second, you know, after she expressed all that relief. And then I followed that up by saying, I don't think that because I don't fit into your box, I don't think that means I need to change. I think it means that your box needs to get a lot, lot bigger. And Absolutely. Then I, and then I told her, and I felt this was justified at this point, that I was done with this conversation, and I would like her to leave. <laughs> and I said that as nicely as I knew how to. And the minute my little friend hit the door, I have to admit, I just burst into tears. It was just a release of tension. I just felt so humiliated. And this other woman is there. This other colleague of mine had to hear it all. And she was amazing, by the way. She actually went to my the person that signs my contracts and said, this needs to be dealt with and this is why. And so it ended up being okay. But it, I have to say shame, guilt, humiliation, degra- degradation, um, just at every level. And also, too, um, not going to lie, my pride was a little hurt here. I thought I was going to be a role model and I'm a Jezebel woman. Amen. Yay. So I just felt awful. Just the whole thing was like horrendous. And uh, that's my worst experience with this whole modesty issue. Um, FYI, they continued to meet as a prayer group for um, that entire semester. And they were in my class and they made my life just lovely um, to the point where the chair of my department had to step in and, and, you know, deal with it. It was, it was, um, how do we say that in Christian story? It was a growing experience. 
I was being stretched by God. Okay, so that's my experience. The worst one anyway. That is, I I still, you told me that story before <laughs> and we've talked about it a lot and I still just barely know how to respond to it. It was bad. I, I don't either. And I guess when, Victoria, when you asked about the discussion of, of you know, modesty, culture being being something that might be perceived as high church, low church, or, or to that, something to that effect, is that is that how we, we couched yeah. that? Yeah. Um, I, I think most people probably think of it as, as primarily a low church Protestant concern. Yeah. Right. It's not to say that that it's not an issue that comes up, um, at least in Catholic circles. But I, I personally have never heard of any Catholics I know ever using those kinds of rhetorical appeals to another person in the course of in the course of a discussion like this one. Um, so I. I Incredulity is is my first response, just because it's it's so foreign to to anything I have ever experienced. And I'm with Victoria. I'm not sure I would know how to respond in a situation like that either. I was. I want to be clear. I didn't know how to respond, but I felt like the Lord. You know, Scripture tells us that when someone attacks you, He'll give you the words to say. And so I did say that. I did say about her box getting bigger and asking her to leave. And again, I just give that back to God that. You know, that's affirming for me that I was meant to be in leadership. I should add something. I am the first female in the Bible and theology department to last more than a year. Okay. Um, And so there's a lot of change process going on with that. And just a lot of transitions and a lot of, you know, hearts and minds kind of changing that needed to go on. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say I don't know if the individual changed, but I do know perceptions of me, and and I just want to say one more time, I, I hope I don't actually have to say this, but I was not dressing anywhere near what I would call him modest, you know. Um, oh no, absolutely. And and as someone who works with you, I, I can attest to this. That and, right? and and I'll also say, though, though my experiences at this school um, have not been nearly as. Um, uh, I, I haven't gotten the kind of backlash that you described in that anecdote, but I have, um, as a female teacher in this environment, been approached by a couple of students who have made reference to my clothing, um, mm-hmm. phrases like stumbling block, yep. um, the, these <laughs> kinds of things. Um, a, a couple of people have couched the conversation, a couple of students, um, male students, have couched the conversation in those terms, and that um, even after, uh, even though those things happened to me after I heard you tell that story for the first time, I was pretty blindsided by it um, because of the authority issue, because, Mm -hmm. you know, um, male, female, whatever, first and foremost, I consider myself your teacher, and and you my student, and I do not see any uh, situation in which it is in, uh, it is acceptable for you to speak to me that way. Amen. <laughs> that was Absolutely. one of my issues too. And sadly, ladies, one of the things that she mentioned, and this will make you both laugh since I've told this, you know, very embarrassing story. That's okay though. I'm okay with it. Um, she goes, well, what does your husband think of the things that you do? And I was like, oh my, really? Tell me, tell me she <laughs> said, does he let you? Tell me, she said. Does he she said you? something like, "What?" She said something in effect of, "What? What does your husband think of how you dress?" That was basically the, you know, the conversation. And that's when I was like, "Okay, I'm, I'm done." 
you know, I'm just, I'm just done, you know. So anyway, um, I was naive and I don't want other women to be naive. I think it's something that I was naive on. I thought the world had changed um, and maybe it has and maybe that was a vocal minority. But when I talk to women who want to be in leadership, I tell them you're going to have to deal with this issue of modesty. I hope you don't ever have to deal with it at the level I did because that was horrifyingly soul crushing a little bit (laughs) but um to have people praying against you and knowing that they're doing it is a very difficult thing to go through um and so I just pray that never happens but I always want women to be prepared and so my point of always sharing that story is just to say you know what know what you think about it know how you would want to respond and just prepare yourself so that you aren't blindsided and that that's usually what I want people to take away if that makes any sense Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a really important discussion to have. And I think that um, the the world is starting to know that it's an important discussion to have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think there's a reason that both of the pieces on modesty we're discussing today come from the blogosphere. Obviously, this is a discussion that is starting to happen broadly in the popular realm. Um, Mm -hmm. These are sort of everyday people who are having this discussion. Yeah, And uh, that, I think, gets us to our second blog post, um, which is uh, where Mrs. Hall was talking to young girls. This is a blog post uh, entitled, Seeing a Woman, a Conversation from Father to Son. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's written by a guy named Nate Pyle. Um, And I picked it. I'm not sure if this is a direct response to Mrs. Hall's blog post. I know lots of um, bloggers, particularly lots of Christian bloggers, wrote direct responses to her. I'm not sure if this is one of those, um, but this is definitely something that I think can be read as a response. So um, what do we see as the differences between uh, Mrs. Hall's post and Mr. Pyle's post? What does he do that she doesn't do? I'm going to let Sarah start off. All right. Well, one of the things that I that I think that Pyle does that uh, Hall might overlook is something that actually cycles back to, to a point that that I made uh, that I mentioned earlier about the idea, this idea that um, that modesty is something that is mutual and that it is something that uh, that occurs on the part of the person who is doing the looking, right? How one looks at others and behaves towards them in conformity with the dignity of persons and their solidarity. And I think that this post does uh, a much better job of clearly articulating that idea that um, that it is incumbent on us as people to see others first and foremost as people um, and to to protect and honor that dignity in in another person rather than uh, jumping to assumptions based on uh, superficial modes um, and I found that idea to be very refreshing um, and a nice I don't want to say nice. Uh, nice is the wrong word, but a poignant counterpoint to the shaming that is that that is much more obvious in Hall's post. Yeah, I I think you're right, Sarah. Um, the thing that I got from this post um, that I didn't get from the original one is is not just um, not just mutual responsibility, as you said, but um, 
what assuming mutual responsibility means that we think about gender. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, what I think is, is part of the second paragraph of a piece. Uh, it is a woman's responsibility to dress herself in the morning. It is your responsibility to look at her like a human being, regardless of what she is wearing. You will feel the temptation to blame her for your wandering eyes because of what she is wearing or not wearing, but don't. Don't play the victim. You are not a helpless victim when it comes to your eyes. You have full control over them. Exercise that control. Train them to look her in the eyes. Discipline yourself to see her, not her clothes or her body. The moment you play the victim, you fall into the lie that you are simply embodied reaction to external stimuli, unable to determine right from wrong, human from flesh. I just wanted to stand up and say amen when I read that quote. I know. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's so amazing. great. And it, it's great because it acknowledges um, that that this modesty idea, this idea that it's it's solely women who are responsible from uh, for preventing men from lusting, what that says about men is that men are drooling animals who can't think with their brains, right? Right. <laughs> and, and, mm -hmm. and, and these kind of rigid gender roles aren't good for anyone, men or women. So I, I really, really loved that that blog post made an attempt not just to say this current view of modesty is incorrect, but here's the underlying reasons why this current view of modesty is incorrect. Absolutely. I totally agree uh, with you, Victoria. I think it's it's a beautiful post in, in its way. And I think that is explicitly, and I think we've already talked about it, is explicitly one of the things that Hall seems to overlook or, you know, perhaps on the other hand, she seems to give credence to when she implies that uh, you know, her teenage sons are ones who, um, are, let's see, you don't want our boys to only think of you in this sexual way. Do you is, mm -hmm. uh, is yeah. Hall's quote. Well, whose responsibility is that to, to teach, to teach them how to do, you know? Right. Um, and, and that's another reason why I think it's hugely important um, that Pyle's post is labeled from father to son, because I, th I think that these single gendered conversations, um, Hall's conversation to young girls, Pyle's conversation to his son, um, these single gendered conversations are often couched in very us versus them terms. I'm a man, so I'm going to tell you, young man, how women are, or I'm a woman, so I'm going to tell you, young woman, how young men are very dichotomized. And so I, I love that his post doesn't do that. Yeah, I, I was very appreciative of just the whole tone of the post. I think that's something I, I personally tend to pick up on is tone well, and we're English was, teachers right that's what we do right I just right. I, but I tend to notice that I think just as part of a personality trait as well the tone is so different it is it's very very different so different mm -hmm. it's he's speaking truth and love there's accountability on both sides and it, it doesn't feel to me like what sometimes I call verbal vomit like something happens and so you sort of verbally <laughs> you know uh, expunge yourself on something and you know it doesn't come off that way at all 
it comes off as very well thought out, very loving, very compassionate, very kind. And I guess I sort of looked at Ms. Hall's post as more of, you know, she's exploding. You know, she's dealing with an issue. She's not happy about it. And bam, you know, here's all this, you know, it, ju- it just comes at you almost like firing bullet points. Bam, 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 you know, and just this, this overall warning tone. Um, you know, we are a zero tolerance family. And I'm like, really? Wow. Okay. See, we're the opposite of that. We're the 70 times seven family because people make mistakes. And so I just, for me, the whole tone is different and I just wanted to applaud it. And the fact that a Christian man is standing up and saying sort of the opposite of sort of the Piper, you know, John Piper revolution um, to me is just amazing. And I just, I loved it. It was very well done. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I, I've been trying this whole time to not talk about John Piper I'm sorry, and Mark I Driscoll. Just, I'm no. so sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's okay. I think we'll probably um, deal with uh, Piper and, and Driscoll and the, the biblical manhood uh, cohort at some point <laughs> in a in a different uh, episode, but, but not today. Okay, no, sorry about that. Just um, It's just that's usually the go-to. Oh, no, I, absolutely. A polarized I, I, way of thinking. It's, I know, yeah. Uh, well, now one, um, I, I just had a, a couple of questions or for you ladies, um, or follow-ups. Um, so it, it could possibly be argued. I keep coming back to, to Hall's piece, uh, that her, the, the lack of a mention of the instruction that she is offering to her sons that might be, something that would work in tandem with the, um, what she believes to be instruction she is providing young women is not an indication that those discussions are not taking place. Oh, I, uh, I, I shouldn't have, um, you know, blanketed that. I want to hope that she's also having those discussions, but because those discussions are not there, we don't know that they are happening. You know, I, this tone, this piece strikes me as the kind, as the kind, and the tone strikes me as such that that if those conversations were taking place, they would be included here, uh, and I'm not sure what to do with that. Yeah, I um, I I made the point earlier that these sexuality conversations are often single gendered, um, mm-hmm. and I, I I think that there's a reason for that, um, but I I am curious. I I would like to know what FYI, if you're a teenage boy, written by her would look like. Uh, I I am curious about that. Well, and the other thing I'm curious about, since she has a daughter, would she adopt this same tone with her own daughter? Absolutely. Yes, I I have that written down as well. Is is the eight-year-old daughter um, uh, absorbing these same messages? If so, what do we do with that? Yeah. I do understand excuse me, I do understand some of the concern though. I have an eight-year-old daughter and um, she remembers who Hannah Montana is with, with love. And that's great. I really couldn't hear that song for the rest of my life, but that's okay. Um, It just got old, but you know, and she still wants to know what's going on with her. And so I do understand where Miss Hall is coming from. You, you do have to be watchful. You do have to you know, look at what your children are looking at. I think that that's extremely important. So, you know, some of it I get and, and some of it, some of the outrage for like where the culture is going, 
I have to share that. I mean, one of the experiences that I get to have every fall, you know, of course, is school shopping for now a 19-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old. And, you know, we go into the typical stores at the mall, and they sell thongs for 8-year-olds. And I'm like, oh, my okay yeah that's that's it's crazy just, town it is and it's like there is there is a sexualization of young girls and i mean young like eight nine ten mm-hmm. that is occurring and so you know miss hall's you know righteous sort of indignation toward that i applaud that on some level because i understand how she's you know, she's seeing this and how it feels. And, you know, like you said, talking to your girls, like that's something that does have to happen. For instance, um, we're a very open household. You're allowed to ask us anything without retribution. Um, that's a rule and I have to stick to it because sometimes usually when I'm being asked something by a child, they've actually also done something wrong. So, you know, it's one of those where you have to kind of hold, hold to that. And, you know, my daughter came home and said, you know, is it okay for me to be on YouTube at a friend's house? And I said, well, she's eight. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, what were you guys looking at? And she said, well, men's private parts. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, let's sit down. Let's have a really good conversation. And we did. We had a great conversation. I also had a conversation privately, not publicly with the mom in the, that, you know, did you know this happened? You know, just trying to be really you know, nice about the whole thing and just make sure she understood, you know, we just don't, we have, we like supervision when little kids are on YouTube, just to make sure nothing weird is popping up, things like that. But I would never do what Miss mm-hmm. Hall did. I would never, ever do that to another person. I mean, from that conversation, so many good things happened. You know, I was shocked. I was appalled about, you know, this whole sexualization and the fact that these little girls were curious, you know, <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't mind the curiosity part, but that they went on YouTube and, you know, did some things they shouldn't be doing was a little bit hard. But um, I just think for me, like if I was Miss Hall, I would pray she wouldn't publicly respond to something like that in the same way. And for me, I just I wanted to constantly realize, OK, this is I have to deal with the culture. I have to deal with the fact that my eight year old was at a friend's house and this happened. And I have to deal with that in a calm, loving compassionate way that generates a bond between me and my daughter so that she can come to me about these things. And so I'm hoping that's happening in their household as well, because, you know, me and my eight-year-old came out stronger from that conversation. Yeah, I I think that that's great. I think that those conversations need to happen. I also want to say that I don't want to be too judgmental of her posts for, for several reasons. One, um, I, I do not have children myself. I don't plan to have them. I don't feel like it's my job to tell other people how they should be raising their kids. Uh, so, uh, Kim Hall, if you happen by some, uh, strange coincidence to be listening to this podcast, please understand that I am not telling you how to raise your children. Um, I totally understand and agree with what you said, Lisa, about, um, sexualization of incredibly young children you know the the thongs for preteens that stuff is just just completely bananas i in fact it's so um so common that there's a marketing term for it now marketers oh, there is mm-hmm. okay marketers call this effect uh kgoy k g o y which stands for kids getting older younger oh my wow and and they okay. um yeah, if, if you want to know more about Kagoy, read, uh, it's a book called Cinderella Ate My Daughter. Uh, I'll, I'll link to it in our show notes. It's by Peggy Orenstein, and okay. it's a, uh, 
Yeah, Cinderella Ate My Daughter uh, dispatches from the front lines of girly girl culture, um, and it, it covers sexualization of young girls. Um, Lisa, you mentioned Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus. There's a chapter on her in there. Yeah, it's so hard because they still want to like her, you know, and it's it's difficult. I mean, you cannot, I don't feel, and this is a personal thing as a mom, I guess, but I don't think you can let an eight-year-old watch her new video. And if you are, then I guess you have different, you know, standards of judgment than I do, you know, and it, it is difficult. And it's something that you do interact with almost on a daily basis. And you know what, we, we, uh, we make mistakes and we're learning, but this idea of the sexualization of the culture, it's just, it's so frontline for me. And this, th- this is an issue. And, and I don't think we're denying that this is an issue that exists, um, that, you know, we, we acknowledge Mrs. Hall's right to, yes. to broach the issue, um, on the internet and to broach the issue with her children. I think we're mostly just taking issue with the, the way in which she approached it. Amen. That's, that's my, that was my point when I was talking about the fact that, you know what, I get it. You know, sometimes you feel that righteous indignation rise up. It's what you do with that, that I think is really important. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I would Um, agree also. And, uh, and again, kudos to her for her, um, her response post, which we will link to both the original post and the response. Uh, but, uh, we're running a little long on time. So (laughs) let's, uh, Let's go into our final segment, which is recommendations. Uh, This is the passing on segment of the show where we tell you a little bit about um, artists, texts, events, issues that we think you should pay attention to. So, Sarah, uh, you're going first. Sure. Um, I, as far as uh, recommendations I have for um, other perspectives on this discussion about modesty and where these things might, uh, where these discussions are happening and and who's having them and how they're having them, uh, it might be worthwhile to check out the website for the Pure Fashion Movement just to take a Mm -hmm. look at what they're trying to accomplish, um, what they purport to accomplish, what they might actually be accomplishing as that might differ from what they claim to be accomplishing. And then um, to check out, if you're interested, I didn't bring it up today, but another uh, one of the discussions that John Paul II has, um, perhaps one of his uh, more well-known works and some from which love and responsibility draws, if you're interested in love and responsibility, to come back to theology of the body. And like I said, I um, the philosophy is a little dense for me, but there is a gentleman by the name of Christopher West who has written a series of books uh, based that essentially serve as study guides or primers. Um, they are pieces about philosophy of the body uh, for a lay audience. Um, he's written uh, the- uh, Theology of the Body for Teenagers, Theology of the Body for Beginners, and um, there's also a companion piece uh, that I was given actually as part of our pre-Cana classes called The Good News About Sex and Marriage, and it draws from the philosophy that is laid out in Theology of the Body and then uh, explains those, um, those teachings in light of relationships with each other and how we might practice modesty um, in the course of our interpersonal relationships. Great. Sounds good. Lisa, how about you? I only have one recommendation. I'm following Sarah. That was amazing. I just have one recommendation. Um, one of the things I think I, that we've all mentioned just at different times throughout this recording is this idea of judgment and condemnation and how there are different ways to handle that. Um, 
different ways to handle issues that are tough, that are challenging. And I am gaining so much from, I I usually recommend books that I personally gain from. um, And I'm really gaining from a book called Unglued by, I think it's Liza, I'm going to butcher this poor woman's name, uh, Turkhurst, I believe. And that was my dog. Sorry if you heard that. Um, uh, Liza Turkhurst. Um, And what I felt was lacking, and we all talked about this with the original post, was this idea that grace wasn't there. And what I'm gaining from this book that there's a better way to handle issues versus judgment, condemnation, and labeling. And this book is all about honor, compassion, and grace. And I just want to share like how much I personally have gained from that. And so I thought, you know, this a whole situation that prompted Miss Hall's blog could have probably been avoided um, with a little more honor for the person, a little more compassion, and a little more grace. And that, and to me, like that's that's also important. So I just kind of wanted to offer that that you know, there are different ways to handle that righteous indignation. And this book goes over that. And it's very, very insightful. Sounds really interesting. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit uh, with my recommendation. And something that we've been talking about that's central to uh, both of this month's episodes, uh, 1.1 and 1.2, is the idea that the personal is political, that uh, what we do as women, as Christian women in our everyday lives, um, can have meaning outside of just our our individual everyday lives. And um, I'm going to recommend another blog post by my friend Carla Ewert, who listeners of the CHP will remember as their guest host uh, on the Fairy Queen episode. Eventually, Carla will also be a regular panelist here at the Christian Feminist. Uh, I say eventually because Carla just gave birth to a daughter, uh, Joelle Reese, about a month ago, so she'll be joining us uh, when things cool down a little bit at their house, uh, when Joelle maybe isn't so tiny and, and sleeps a little more regularly. So uh, Carla's blog post is over at the Socratic Project, and it's entitled, Are We Sacrificing Too Much for Politics? She wrote it uh, last fall in the middle of the election cycle, and that post provides another really interesting facet of the personal is political discussion that we've been having here. So I think that uh, that you should all check that out. It'll serve as an introduction of sorts to Carla, who is a deep thinker, really compassionate, uh, and we're glad to have her on board here at The Christian Feminist. So those are our recommendations. Uh, thanks so much for listening to episode 1.2 of The Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For Sarah Morrow and Lisa Cordles, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll begin a series on feminist history. Until then, in Essentials Unity in non-essentials liberty, and in all things, love.